Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, Edward Chancellor, author of The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, and financial historian, joins us to discuss the current events around Silicon Valley Bank and other bank failures, and whether these are the first shoes to drop in a broader financial crisis, and the role interest rates play at the heart of that, and what that means for the commodities sector. Edward, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. So, you know, I'm I'm half delighted, half terrified to be doing this special update, you know, so soon after we recorded our episode about a month ago, much of which seems quite prescient and certainly relevant today. Um, At that time, we were talking about your book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest Rates. And, you know, we're just doing a special update in the wake. We're recording on Sunday, the 19th. Um, I'm about to fly to to Switzerland um, uh, for an event. And, you know, as we talk, we've had, I think, by by latest count, three banks in the United States have failed uh, and been variously rescued. And we, you know, as we talk, Swiss uh, Credit Suisse are uh, are in talks with UBS apparently to be taken over, but are certainly in trouble. I guess I I kind of wanted to start off at the on the broad picture, which is you know how are how are interest rates? They've obviously been risen quickly by the by the Fed, and we were expecting another rise at the end of this month, which now looks we'll come on to it, but looks less likely. How does that story and the story we told about interest rates? fit in with what we've seen so far with these bank failures? Well, so the the argument of my book was that the very low interest rates uh, that were instituted after the Lehman bust and really continued until the uh, early months of last year had created a number of fragilities in the financial system and in the world economy, and so that was a you know, that was my thesis. And when I gave the book to the to my publishers and had a sort of marketing talk with them, I suggested they should market it as the first book of the next crisis because it was my view that any attempt to raise interest rates would 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 trigger a financial crisis. And um, if one looks at, the Fed only started raising rates in, the, I think, the early in the second quarter of 2022. And they raised them quite quickly, but to relatively low absolute levels. And, you know, just above 4% the Fed funds rate is today, which is sort of roughly in line with its post-war average. And yet, um, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, quite worrying things have happened in the financial world. And in our last discussion, you know, the what we could point to was you know, the collapse in the bond and the stock markets last year, which I think wiped off about $30 trillion of value worldwide. Uh, we had problems, if you remember, in the gilts market, uh, where uh, the UK long-dated government's bonds crashed. And they almost brought down the UK pensions, uh, uh, large pension firms. And then we had this, the the implosion of the crypto world and the bankruptcy 
of Sam Bankman Fried's um, FTX exchange. Now, more you know, in the last ten days, we've had another new development, which is the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of banks that were bankers to the crypto world, uh, Silvergate Capital and Signature Bank. And then the problems at Silicon Valley Bank have rippled through the regional banks in the, in the US, creating sort of tremors that are reminding people of the problems, you know, of the problems uh, associated with the global financial crisis. So if we if we stand back for a second and say, what is you know what is the common factor that links near bankruptcy of the UK pension funds with the with the failure of the, of FTX and now more recently uh, the the collapse of of Silicon Valley Bank, the common theme is is exposure to interest rates or exposure to rising interest rates to the fact that you know the way i probably the easiest way to explain it is this way everyone has a a balance sheet uh containing assets and liabilities and the very low interest rates inflate the value of the assets on your balance sheet um so that you um say for instance whether whether it's real estate or bonds or equities the low interest rate or the low discount rate leads to higher valuation. So you, on the asset side, feel richer. And on the liability side, what you what you pay on your debts, the low interest rate makes everything that much more affordable or seemingly affordable. And therefore, then you have to imagine what happens when the interest rate rises. Well, your assets come down in value and the cost of your liabilities rise. And frankly, that's what happened at Silicon Valley Bank, where two years ago, uh, it, it, it was awash with deposits from these um, startups, um, technology startup companies, and, and it was paying nothing for those deposits. It paid next to no interest payments on deposits at the time when the Fed funds rate was zero. And it had trouble Therefore, what to do with its liabilities? There wasn't any particular demand for 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 its loans, as the tech startups mainly equity financed, and uh, so it put them in apparently safe U.S. Treasuries and and agency mortgage bonds uh, at very low at very low yields, but at yields above zero. And in doing so, it took what we call duration risk, a, a risk that if interest rates would would rise wherever to rise that, that it would lose money on their or on its bonds or it was or you can also say it was mismatching uh, the duration of its of its of its assets and liabilities so that that was a particular problem at the silicon valley bank but the general problem and the problem that the banking system as a whole is now um having to deal with is um this question of, of of duration exposure and whether you know and how much assets will come down as interest rates rise and can i say one thing this is not this is not just a question of um 
of U.S. Treasuries. The, the U.S. banks have large uh, commercial real estate exposure, and we've already had, as interest rates rise, um, some commercial real estate failures. In, in part, that's to do with uh, the lockdowns and people continuing to work from home. But uh, PIMCO, the, the giant U.S. Um, investment firm, has already defaulted on the on the loans to its um, on the loans that one of its um, real estate subsidiaries had, and 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 so as I say, it's not just a question of of government bonds falling in value; it's a question of a sort of more widespread collapse in values, and therefore what that does to balance sheets. And it has been signalled, I think, by the Fed that there's like a three trillion hole in a lot of these assets that banks hold as a result of interest rates rising. And the Fed stepped, well, Janet Yellen stepped in very quickly last weekend or last Monday, you know, in response to a lot of calls from, you know, ironically, hedge fund managers in particular, you know, demanding a rescue uh, for the the reason that the depositors, you know, the depositors didn't, you know, should have uh, been signaled by the regulator that this bank had a problem. And therein lies an interesting comment as well, that the regulators miss this. Yeah, so... Let's stop on on the regulatory question, because if you remember in the book, I argue that um, the financial operators, you know, since the dawn of time (laughs) have have been finding clever ways to evade financial regulations. And that although after the financial crisis, there was a mass of new regulation printed, uh, it, it was my argument based on really historical observation that the that the regulators would always be fighting the last war so to speak and not see the new risks that were building up and the new risk that was building up was as what we've been discussing interest rate risk or exposure to rising interest rates and you know it's it's i mean there's a there's some several sweet ironies here first of all that as the new part of the new banking regulations, the government debt or US treasuries was conceded a zero risk weighting uh, in the in the new regulations. So the other irony is that the chief, one of the chief architects of the US financial regulations, uh, Barney, former congressman Barney Franks, was actually on the board of Signature Bank, the ba- one of the banks that fails. So again, this recent development, I don't want to sound sort of too conceited, but this recent development also confirms my argument that that the ultra-low interest rates got into all the cracks of the financial system. And therefore, when the low interest rates, when we left the low interest rate era, the the number of areas in which problems could emerge were uh, vast and would never be foreseen by the regulators. The first big question we sort of have is, you know, was this, did this pose contagion and systemic risk and what they did with SVB, I effectively and therefore across the banking system, effectively guarantee deposits, at least for the ironically, the strategically, uh, systemically non-important banks, um, and also opened up um, cheap loans on these assets uh, for a year for, for any bank that wanted to take them. I mean, What's your, I mean, could the Fed have done anything else? Could, I mean, was it viable just to take the pain and let that bank go down or would it have caused 
of a system-wide failure? Well, we had, if you remember, it's it's a case of, sort of deja vu all over again because uh, in in the UK when um, Northern Rock, the small mortgage bank, went down or started to have a bank run in uh, in in the fall of two thousand and seven. Uh, the Mervyn King of the Bank of England sort of raised this question about whether there was a, you know, whether the bank should be saved or whether that created a risk of moral hazard. I think my view is you're sort of slightly damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, if you do nothing, uh, you um, you potentially allow the contagion to spread. And one of the interesting things about the contagion of the Silicon Valley bank is it seems to have been spread largely through you know social media that the people Twitter yeah the amplification it's a Twitter it's a sort of Silicon Valley bankruptcy in which all the all the Silicon Valley VCs and and startup people were apparently texting each other on on social media so you get the potential for much more rapid contagion nowadays over the social network, so that and that's for sure. Um, and there were other banks that um, that like Silicon Valley uh, didn't, you know, had large numbers of un- uninsured deposits. So those create you know, risks of of, of of bank runs. However, um, damned if you do side of it is um, that the central banks. Uh, are obliged to take on more risk onto their own balance sheet. I mean, you, the 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 temporary lending program that the Fed has uh, initiated allows banks to deposit with the Fed uh, treasuries par value, even when those treasuries market value is below par. So, in theory, a bank can take along eighty million dollars of of market collateral and receive a hundred million dollars. Of cash from the Fed or loan from the Fed, uh, and that that means the the Fed is is taking you know is once again expanding its balance sheet. I read that the Fed had increased its balance sheet already in recent weeks by three hundred billion dollars. And when the UK pension funds were in trouble back in early October last year. The Bank of England, which had just announced uh, a hike in rates in the beginning of the, and the fact it was going to sell off its um, some of its bond holdings, so-called quantitative tightening, the Bank of England had to reverse its quantitative tightening and actually uh, go into the markets and buy long-dated gilts. And so it's the same story, I think, in both cases, although the US intervention is much larger and more significant is that faced with a problem, uh, a new problem, the central banks have having are now having to resort to their age-old, uh, not age-old, but something we saw during the global financial crisis, um, in- interventions to support balance sheets of financial actors. And the danger is, I think, in the long run, is that they overburden themselves. Um, it, it's, it's slightly forgotten in this, in the, Discussion around the fa- the bank failures in the U.S. that the 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 um, Federal Reserve itself has lost several billion dollars. I can see if I can find you the exact number. 
on its um, on its balance sheet, on its securities portfolio. Uh, the 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 Swiss National Bank, I think, lost something like two hundred and fifty billion dollars last year, and the Australian National Bank lost so much money, or the Australian the Reserve Bank of Australia lost so much money that it actually wiped out its equity capital. So you can see um, that the central banks are now in a position where they are themselves exposed uh, to solvency risk from their own portfolios running to trillions of dollars, um, and yet at the same time might be expected to take on unlimited new financial exposure. And we, you can argue, you know, people will argue that it doesn't matter whether a central bank goes bust or not, uh, because it can just print money. Well, if it can just print money, then that would seem to suggest uh, that the outcome of this um, of this circum- of this situation is going to be more inflationary than otherwise. Yeah. And it's worth noting that Fed intervention as well is only those loans are good for a year. So, you know, there, there's an element of potentially just kicking this can, you know, to March 15th, 2024. Um, and, you know, and, and there'll be an interesting date to see what happens then to those banks. President Reagan said there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you remember, the initial, original QE and zero interest rates was meant, you know, they were meant to be um, very short term, just just for the just for the course of the crisis, and you know, um, more, you know, fourteen years later, we were still stuck at zero rates and and uh, with QE, and so again, that again fits with part of my concern expressed in the book, which was you, you get into these crisis policies, you seek to defer the immediate shock, the immediate bankruptcies, but the cost of doing so is perpetuating crisis mechanisms or policies that it almost indefinitely and from which it's almost impossible to escape. Yeah, and the the number of interventions and the intensity of interventions has only really sort of gone on a a march upwards since, you know, long-term capital management, right? And there's this argument out there that you've got to stop intervening to let the economy heal, um, but this in brings in this tension between obviously what the Fed is trying to do is, well, before we move on to the political ramifications of this, just one question. Um, Credit Suisse, how does that fit in this? And is this a harbinger of European, more European banks under pressure? Because they don't obviously have, you know, they've got, you know, they are not the, uh, the US banks where we have, a, you know, at least we are the global currency, so to speak, that gives us some better leverage when it comes to interest rates and so forth. What what is it what does Credit Suisse story fit in? I don't know the the ins and outs of the Credit Suisse story this year. Um as you as we're all aware, you know, Credit Suisse lost a lot of money um uh, by by um in loans to a to a an American uh, Korean born uh hedge fund um operator who who lost uh, tens of billions of dollars speculating in, in 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 during the sort of COVID bubble, and it also was involved uh, and lost money in the uh, in a sort of Australian banking scandal that the former uh, UK Prime Minister David Cameron was involved in called Greensill. So 
it it was Credit Suisse appears to have been sort of tied up in um, in financial scandals and losses uh, that I would say were sort of related to um, you know the the ultra low in the speculation uh, and and yield chasing and uh, that was that we observed during the zero interest rate period. It's also I think this year. I think it's also, I'm afraid, to say a bit of a sort of Twitter, you know, a, a Twitter panic. A friend of mine, former editor of mine, uh, was for a while last year the head of communications at Credit Suisse, and he, he maintained that the stock price was going down because some person of no note in the Australian outback was tweeting concerns about Credit Suisse's balance sheet. So I think that, you know, you know when you're in febrile times, Panic can spread quite rapidly, and you know if you're you know, a large investment bank, even if you're putatively well capitalized, uh, you, you, and if you've made some big mistakes in the past, which Credit Suisse obviously has done, then it's not easy. It's, it's not difficult to dispel confidence and and therefore you know, create a sort of downward spiral. I think the there was sort of a bit of a a social media challenge when the the Saudi minister had said, you know, under no circumstances will we uh, invest more in um, in Credit Suisse, and you know, and that section of his speech was clipped and posted far and wide. He subsequently went on, <clears throat> excuse me, he subsequently went on to say, well, if we go above ten percent, we suddenly have a lot of regulatory issues, and it becomes becomes politically difficult. I, I yeah, that that Credit Suisse's stock should fall fifty percent in a day because. Uh, its major shareholder acknowledged that they faced a regulatory uh, hurdle to increasing their stake, uh, which is something that must have, you know, must have been known. It's not new information. Uh, it is just a sign of of extremely tense. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. When we left off our conversation, albeit just a few short weeks ago, you know, we, we sort of ended up on this, the political tension, the battle between the need to rise interest rates to tackle inflation and the impact now in stark relief that that would have on all of these, on the over leverage or the incredible leverage that sits in the global system. I think there's sort of, you know, I don't want to go into numbers, I'm not very good at it, but there's, an, you know, just the, the world's balance sheets are assets are incredibly inflated so where we we've, we saw um in the intervention of the fed you know uh you know a willingness not to take the pain for for very good reasons damned if you do damned if you don't where does that leave you know in a week when we were expecting the fed to rise you know 25 basis points where does that story end up i haven't really changed my view um i i thought that the central banks face a choice between tightening to control inflation, but at the risk of inducing a financial crisis, which would itself have deflationary implications, or it could go easy 
on the inflation front or you know easy on the inflation front but at the risk of 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 letting inflation run out, out of control i think the and and my view was that once they realized the severity of of the risks embedded in the system they would <laughs> they would um they would um cease to act so tough on on inflation and that we would be uh we would then you know enter a period of uh, what's called financial repression in which interest rates were kept well below the rate of inflation in order to allow the debt to burn off um th- so that that I that was the sort of base case in the book where at the conclusion of the book um I think now um you know in the event of of, of the banking failures and this um extension of, of government loan of go- of federal reserve insurance and and how as i mentioned this is exact in the same follows the same playbook as the bank of england with the pet with the uk pensions getting to problem i think now we're we're the the risk that the central banks become overburdened uh do too much at a time when they're losing money on their own balance sheets and that they that you that that can get to a point where people lose confidence in the central banks to control money as as guardians of the stability of 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 the currency and if that happens you could potentially get a much higher spike in in inflation not just your moderate inflation of the type we've already seen over the last year and a half but you could get uh, as i say you know inflation to large extent depends on people's confidence that money would retain its value you know what we call the velocity of circulation of money and that's been you know, trended downwards over the years but uh, i think there is now a, a growing risk that uh, you know money becomes a bit of a hot potato and people you know, particularly if the fed lowers rates in the face of stubbornly high inflation you know, will people keep such large balances in their bank when they're paid will they immediately move the cash balances on to someone else and if they do so then you get a type of inflation you know um that is um can be very sharp and i th- i think i'd say i mean, i don't know if that i don't think that's necessarily my base case but um i think it's sort of yeah i think <laughs> i think it's sort of more likely than actually the fed acting very tight and continuing to tighten and causing a deflationary bust which is obviously the other possibility i mean there are no well, there are no sort of easy you know, one doesn't want to sort of crow about it but there are there are no easy escapes from this circumstances as you say excessively high debt um levels excessively high um asset valuations and the probably the easiest way out at least painful for society is the one of financial repression of you know let's say a gap between uh inflation and interest of uh, of of 5% or you know between 5 and 10% a year and then every year that means that the real burden the debt is is declining and at times e- even at a 5 you know e- 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 if inflation if interest rates are normal rates are uh, you know a few percentage points 
that in itself brings down valuations. So you could see there would be a sort of orderly unwinding of the excess debt and excess valuations would be possible. But um, but you can also see there could be a disorderly one. What what happens to this? You know, we also spoke in our last episode about the global carry trade. Um, you know, is this you know, what does this mean for sort of developing markets? What does this mean, you know, for the world outside of the, you know, is it going to be exponentially worse the further you get away from sort of, you know, the US dollar? The global carry trade, I don't know if we mentioned this, but Bank of International Settlements have identified some $65 trillion of US, um, of US debt exposure by non-US institutions in the foreign exchange swaps market. And I think the BIS also sort of note, normally notes around you know, $10 trillion worth or so of, of, of conventional dollar debt outside the banking system. Um, and and I, I mean, obviously last year we had a very strong dollar and the emerging markets were under the cosh, their currencies, not all of them, but some of their currencies depreciated in their markets. Uh, fell uh, and says presumably people are now moving to pay back their their foreign dollar dollar borrowings um but i think that yes that the question of of the global tra- carry trade has, is perhaps another shoe that hasn't quite dropped you know, the people are also talking about you know the fact that the bank of japan has maintained its zero interest rate policy continues to print has continued printing uh, money to fix the the 10-year Japanese government bond yields and people worried that there are potential um, uh, potential for market turmoil uh, for 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 Japanese financial institutions when the BOJ ever t- tightens and bear in mind that these Japanese financial institutions will have been playing the international carry trade themselves. They will have been taking uh, cheap Japanese deposits uh, where short-term rates are negative and investing at high yields abroad. So there's definitely a possibility or something that should, you know, that thoughtful analysts and investors should be thinking about that, that, that Japan and the international carry trade could throw some further turbulence our way. It's kind of worrying, isn't it? Because you know, this there are echoes of two thousand and eight here, right? We're we're sort of early part of the year, we had Bear Stearns go down, and by the end of the year, um, you know, we had a full on banking crisis. And you know, usually recessions start with a trigger, and usually that trigger is in the financial markets. You know, is 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 this going to be? Can the genie go back in the bottle, basically, or do you think that we're going to see a slow roll of? of bank failures. I mean, especially, you know, in the US, we've got this sort of weird construct now where you might as well put your money in one of the systemically important banks, you know, um, because, you know, then definitely the Fed's basically said they're not going to go down. Um, You know, it's, it just seems like... Or a treasury money market fund. Yes, just exactly. Get it straight into your Vanguard treasury market and and avoid it all, right? I mean, even even if they were to have that financial repression of, okay, we're going to keep interest rates at 5%, um, inflation is going to run at seven or eight or whatever it ends up running at. That's still ultimately, you know, the argument from your book is, albeit that's a very low interest rate, that's still possibly un- unbearable for 
for many of these for the leverage in the system. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, that's a good point. I one of the things that we we haven't you know we talked a bit about these sort of Twitter um, contagion, uh, but it's also much easier now to move money from 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 bank accounts into um, other other savings vehicles. Uh, I think that Sil- uh, Silicon Valley Bank lost, I think it lost $25 billion or perhaps $40 billion in a single day through really through online um, movements of, of, of deposit funds. And I talk lively about um, how um, you can, set, you know, the, the governments, the authorities can impose financial repression uh, at, at, which was the case after the Second World War when rates were kept low and the government debt was was uh, reduced. But financial repression does really require, um, it really requires the state to take a bigger control over the direction of credit. In, in the post-war period, it was associated with capital control, so you couldn't take your money out of the country. So for, I think your point is right. You know, if, if, Conventional banks lose deposits to um, money market funds or credit funds that are deemed to be more secure and offer higher yields, and that was one of the problems with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and and the other. They were the the they they weren't re- they weren't increasing their deposit rates and to, to remain competitive with the money market funds whose yields were higher. And that's why um, I, that was the initially I think the reason. They started bleeding deposits, not for fear of, of, of insolvency, but just because higher yields were available elsewhere. Which, which is systemic, right? I mean, like you might, you go to Wells Fargo or whomever, and you get zero point zero one percent, right? So why not go to Treasuries? You know, which which furthers this issue. No, I agree. I mean, yeah, I mean, there can be a merry-go-round in which you know, the money goes into. Um, you know, into one institution that then gets deposited with the Fed, and the Fed then lends the money back to to uh, the bank that lost the money in the first place. So, I mean, anything. I mean, it, you, there are probably ways of solving that. But I think your, you know, the, the fundamental point is, is you say, can can the genie uh, be put back in the bottle? And I think that would depend largely on the if you had a stable collapse. Of inflation expectations down to so that inflation went down to its target of two percent or thereabouts and remained there. Um, my guess is that, and this is just a guess, is that if inflation comes down, which appears to be coming down, the danger is it doesn't it doesn't stop at two percent, but then you get it moves into negative territory and you get the concerns shift from inflation to deflation. So I think I think. The situation is is unstable. I, I, you know, the the global financial crisis took a long time to play out. I mean, I was working as a journalist in New York, and we were observing the you know, the subprime uh, defaults and 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 collapse of subprime originators uh, back in uh, two thousand and six. And it took you know it got, took really two years between the initial tremors and the uh, and the collapse of, of Lehman Brothers. So these things do take a long time. And this year, you know, for most of this year, we've been in this sort of 
sunny period, you know, very strong markets in, in, in January, and a belief that, you know, the, that inflation was going to be temporary and all was well. And I think, you know, that, that events the last week have, have really dispelled that, that, that wishful thinking. Yeah. So it's interesting, when, you know, ironically, the one asset that's done well this past week has been Bitcoin, right? I mean, a, a, a sort of flight to non-fiat, as they say. Um, you know, do you think there's anything in that or is that, you know, I mean, is that Bitcoin finally doing what it says it does, which is it's a stable store of value? No, I, I mean, you gold went up a bit last week too, and I, I, I don't. I think Bitcoin is is purely speculative, and and yeah, it may well be moving on a speculation that there's going to be a loss of control in uh, in in the in the stability of money, as you mentioned, but. Um, I, I do. I still don't think that that gives Bitcoin any future. I, I think. I think you know, for just it, it has even less future. Think about what I was saying about financial repression. Well, one th- one thing it's pretty obvious that the authorities will do is close down competition to the deposits that the authorities want to keep and control, and and that means that the the you know the regulatory attack. On Bitcoin, I, I would say is, is going to get even stronger. So yeah, you know, long term zero. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've forgotten what my uh, professor said. He said you could have a uh, my economics professor. He was you could have um, was it? It's it's uh, in government set interest rates or central banking monet- central banking monetary policy, uh, floating FX rates and capital controls. You had to pick two. Yeah, you know, and and I guess that's to your point, right? You we, you know, if we are going to, we can't allow free flows of capital if we're going to try and 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 control interest rates and and FX. Yeah, I think that's called the Trif- Triflin's trilemma, not a dilemma, but a trilemma. And yeah, that's so you if you want to control uh, your yeah, if you want to con- given the if you want to control your money supply and your um and your interest rates um. You better fix the, the, and you're worried about your FX. You you bet you can fix your FX by in, in, imposing capital controls. Yeah. So where does this? I mean, okay. So putting all this together, because I I, and I appreciate we're in very uncertain times, and it's certainly going to be an interesting um, FT commodities event next week. Um, the where do where do you sort of sit on what the Fed is going to do, and what does this mean? Because, you know, coming on to commodities, one of the outcomes of this is going to be one fewer Swiss bank, probably. Um, you know, fewer, you know, you're going to see a consolidation, no doubt, of the continued banking runs. You know, um, where, what, do, what does it mean for the Fed rate? And what does it mean for the commodities sector, just in terms of this tightening money, continued tightening money, money, money supply, basically? I don't near term have any better view or stronger view than what the bond markets are already telling you. And the bond markets, as you know, uh, are after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the two-year bonds produce their, two-year treasuries produce their best performance ever as expectations, market expectations, that the Fed wouldn't tighten as much as it previously thought. So I would suggest 
that clearly Im implies that the Fed is not going to tighten as much uh, uh, as it as it might have done otherwise. And I think that's correct. Um, I think that you know from the commodities perspective, I think this banking problems, and I'm being purely speculative here, but the the banking problems might be expected to usher in a, a tightening of lending standards because that's sort of normally what happens. And with less credit available, you probably move closer to a sort of recession scenario. And under those circumstances, you would have thought that perhaps those are negative for um, commodities. I mean, it's interesting how weak uh, oil has been. Uh, but I think in the long run, or longer run, as you know, there is a shortage of, of uh, sh you know, in, inadequate investment in in energy extraction, and a short and a lack of investment in 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 uh, industrial um, commodities, and so that I think you know remains a sort of a long term theme, and and then the longer term bullish story. I would say is that we have shifted more, you know, more in the direction of inflation, and as I'm sure we discussed in our earlier conversation, uh, commodities are real assets, and if you own real assets um, when at reasonable valuations, particularly when they're in a benign phase of the capital cycle, uh, then over the medium term you should be. All right, so I would say that the near-term uh, situation is perhaps slightly worsened, but the long-term situation has probably improved for commodities as an inflation hedge. I mean, do you tell me, Paul, what's happened? I don't know what's happened to the what's happened to copper in the last week or so. Yeah, they've all they've all sort of rebounded. Um, it's interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, one of the sort of things that strikes me about the the sort of the human angle of this, which I think ties us back to the beginning of the conversation with SVB, is. You know, one of the things that we're seeing huge demand for is is credit professionals, you know, which really, you know, were in low demand in the last decade. Um, you know, part of that is because everything's moved on to exchanges. But the, you know, the world isn't very used to four to five percent interest rates. The world isn't very, you know, professionals for the most part haven't, you know, have if they do remember the global financial crisis, it was quite early in their career, and they certainly weren't overseeing outcomes. Um, it's a very challenging space to navigate. And you just look at the commodities sector. You know, you've got, I think we, we, we spoke about it in our last episode, you've got a lot of money that has flowed into these speculative projects around energy transition. And we've got Adam Rosenweig coming up uh, talking about EROI, the energy return on investment, which is a very interesting episode. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's, a, it's just a very challenging space out there. And, and, you know, I think the access to finance and, is just getting harder. There's a lot of also demand for finance professionals, structured financiers, people who can work with banks to get money for these trading houses. I mean, it's a very, it's just a very uh, challenging environment for at least the commodity traders. And within that lies a lot of opportunity because it generates a lot of volatility. I think there's going to be more cyclicality. I mean, you see now the oil price come down, but from what I've read, there hasn't been substantial pick up in investment um and therefore you would expect and and you know and the the new that new 
new oil fields coming on don't aren't sufficient on a replacement cost basis for for what we've we're use, utilizing. So I would expect um, oil price to come back very sharply at some stage, so that you get this volatility. So you and and you know particularly if we get an inflationary wave, you could see the you know the a short term downturn. And then you know a very rapid rise to you know heaven knows to you know, above one hundred and fifty dollars or thereabouts. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's. <laughs> I think volatility is the word. Um, well, I mean, it's. Thank you so much for coming back on. I think we all appreciate kind of an update and your take on what's going on. And I, what fascinated me and triggered me to to, to reach out again was, it was fascinating when we were going through the SVB collapse. Every single reason was given under the sun as the real cause, right? Including <laughs> wokeness. You know, it turned out that you know, the CEO was golfing at the time. He gave his uh, he gave his very sort of uh, contrite uh, message to the employees that the bank had failed. Um, you know, uh, very. It was really no um, groundswell of message that this fundamentally is about interest rates, um, and and that story seemed to be lost in in okay in VC, in Twitter, in sort of all these other reasons, bad risk management, this kind of that. The VC, the tech bubble, the Silicon Valley bubble, was also driven by uh, low interest rates. So actually Silicon Valley Bank was caught on sort of, by a sort of scissor movement, uh, both, you know, whether the losses on its securities or the losses of deposits from startups that were uh, cash negative. So so it was, it, it's a it's a double story of the impact of of ultra low rates and and their their woeful legacy and and kind of you know where you ended up where we both ended up in our last discussion where you end up in the book is you know unless there is a a, a determined uh to tackle or the, the determination to tackle the results of low interest rates we you know we're kind of in this trap as you say where you know any move up has just overwhelming ramifications that are unpalatable to the to the global polity and we were sort of stuck in this zombie sort of economy where you've got increasing government interventions which we know is not necessarily you know all of these ending up mean ending up picking winners and government picking winners usually doesn't make for a good outcomes um, for the vibrancy of an economy and opportunity and you know it seems in the wake of SVB you know the the first reaction you know and again the clarion call from these capitalist hedge fund managers you know screaming for intervention is sort of has some some irony to it yeah and then the next will be calls for more regulation and the more the central you know the more of the balance sheets of private banks are in effect insured by the central government the more the greater the role central government will determine in the allocation of capital so yes that's um that's worrying but as i say the it probably these things nothing goes on forever and and as i said probably at some stage the authorities will either lose control of inflation or become overburdened with the with the liabilities that they're in effect insuring in which case you will then have got to the end point we're not quite there yet well, a, a happy story for a Sunday morning. Okay, well, uh, Edward, um, really, real pleasure to have you back on. You know, I think uh, I think listeners know that we can't recommend the book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, enough. And, uh, you know, 
people to go out there and get a copy of that and have a read. It's, it makes for fascinating insight. And, um, you know, hopefully we can have you back on a, again, you know, March 15th, 2024, when all those, uh, when all those, those loans come due to the, uh, to the Fed. Okay. Thanks a lot, Paul. Nice speaking to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.